If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you open them to Galatians 3. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29. Culture changes quickly. My wife and I are continually reminded of this because we were raised by our children's age uh, when there was no internet. And so uh, just this week we had to explain to my daughter what life was like prior to the internet. And uh, that if she wanted to find out information, she'd have to go look the thing up in a book. And then if she wanted more information beyond what the encyclopedia had to offer her, she would have to make her way to a library where there were more books. And if she wanted to know how to do something, this came up because she was braiding her hair and she was asking about different ways to braid her hair. And we described to her this this vast desert of life which no YouTube existed in. And, and that in order to find out how to do something, you'd either have to read step-by-step instructions or you'd have to find somebody who actually knew what they were doing. And you couldn't do it on the internet. You'd have to go talk to them face-to-face. Life changes quickly. Culture changes quickly. We have already adapted our culture to the idea that cell phones are omnipresent. We can get directions and information and communication instantly, almost regardless of where we are. We can check in with our loved ones to see if they're okay in a storm like this. I remember my father-in-law speaking of storms that are much worse than this when he grew up in South Dakota, and he said it used to be life-threatening because if you got lost in the snow... There were miles and miles and miles of nothing. You could die. But today, you can just make a call, and somebody can come and get you, and somebody can help you. We are reminded of how quickly even our culture changes, and then we come to a book like the Galatians, and to a people who are Galatians, and and we realize how much different we must be than them. My ch- children are growing up in a culture that's completely different than the one that I grew up in. They will, they will be able to, to recognize and relate to technology in ways that, that I won't be able to. And, and even so, the Galatians lived in a time that was thousands of years ago. We are separated not only by chronological distance, but a great geographic distance as well. They, their culture looks nothing like our culture does. We are a different people. We are a different people with a different language, and we will face different challenges, and even so, we'll have different opportunities. We are not the Galatians. Part of what we do then when we preach or we study and we read books on Scripture is trying to relate that culture to ours. How do we get from here to where we are? We think that this book has actual import for us and how we live our lives. How do we get from here to there? There is one thing, there's two things really, that aid all of that. One is that this book is authored by the Spirit who can then enliven us to what he wants us to gain from it. And that is helpful and important. The other issue, an important one today, is that the human condition is the same. The Galatians are different. They're they're from a different culture, but they're still people. And you are no different than them. Your longings, your desires, the things that you want and the things that you miss, the things that you need are all the same as the Galatians. The same provision has been made for you in Christ as was made for the Galatians. The Galatians wanted, above everything else, assurance and salvation. That was what they wanted the most. They needed to have assurance in salvation. How were they supposed to know that they belonged to the people of God? This was the bill of goods that the The agitators sold them when they came in. They said, listen, if you really want to be part of the people of God, if you want to know that you're part of the people of God, then go read the law. And the law says you must be circumcised. This is why they were selling them on circumcision. You can imagine for very many adult males, that's a tough sell, right? The reason why the Galatians were willing to go in on it was totally because this would have given them assurance, they thought, in salvation. This mark on your body shows your 
your devotion to God. It shows that you are part of the covenant people because this is part of the covenant that he made. You can understand both why it was a large hurdle to cross and also why men would want to cross it. That issue of assurance is worth it to know that you are part of the people of God. Paul's continually warning the Galatians then throughout the book that this step is not going to assure you of your salvation. It will assure you, but only of your condemnation. It will place you back under the law. But nevertheless, the issue of assurance is front and center on how we approach the book of Galatians. That's what the Galatians sought, and it is also something that we seek. You can find this just by listening to how people talk. Continual refrain that is put before people is that God loves you, that God has a plan for your life, that God is caring for you and he's watching out for you, that these things will always work according to the plan of some master builder or something like that. They want assurance that everything's going to be okay. Even atheists want this, although they might find it in an odd spot. They still want assurance that everything's working out for the best. They take comfort in evolution to those ends. We, too, need assurance. There isn't a person in here who hasn't asked God for assurance of their salvation, that they might know that they truly are saved. As we come today to this scripture, we're going to look at not ways that you can be affirmed, but ways that you shouldn't be affirmed in the faith. Things that you are tempted to find your affirmation and tempted to be assured by, but that you should avoid and instead trust in Christ. First, do not seek affirmation in your skill. Let us read verses 24 through 29. Paul writes, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul would ask of you, plead with you, as he pleads with the Galatians, do not seek affirmation in your skill. This is the running refrain of the book of Galatians, that your work, that the, the things that you can do and your obedience in the law are not what you should find your affirmation and is not where you should seek to make your commendation before God. This is the overarching point of the book of Galatians, but Paul makes it here in a very unique way. He talks about, metaphorically, what the law is. And our translations say guardian. If you are prone to read the KJV, which is a perfectly fine translation most of the time, you would find the KJV calling this a schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster. The word that's used here is the same word that we still use today. It's a loan word from Greek that we use today that we talk about teachers. They are pedagogues. Okay. Pedagogical is, is a method of teaching, right? It's a, it's a way of speaking of teaching, and that's the word that's used here. And the KJV picks up on that. He says that it is our schoolmaster. The NAS, which was revised even in 1995, still uses the word tutor. But this is almost assuredly wrong. Even though we think of pedagogues as teachers primarily, that is not what pedagogues were in the first century. What pedagogues were in the first century were basically slaves. They didn't have to be slaves, but the vast majority of the time they were slaves. And if you were a rich man and you could afford one, you would appoint a slave to be a pedagogue over your son. 
And the, the whole point of doing that was that that slave had rulership over your son. He, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted with him, but the main job was to protect him, to provide for him, to get him to and from school, to give him some sort of moral formation and moral protection as well. He was to watch over him, to take care of his basic needs. He was in authority over the young man, but nevertheless, he was at the behest of the young man. He was a servant to the young man as well. These men were sometimes viewed as good. After all, the the fathers to many of these men would have been very distant, and so they would have come to see this guardian almost as a father figure. Some of these were also seen as just horrific people, and you read of people who they want to describe as morally corrupt and inept. They would often talk about the pedagogue. So they could be good, they could be bad. And they can take on all of these functions of protection, of moral education, even though they weren't the actual teachers of these people. They were people who got children, especially the boys, from from school and home who would provide food for them and watch over them. All of this is true, but when you read the metaphor here, there seems to be one thing that these guardians were to do, whether it was to provide protection whether it was to do anything else, their goal was to get that boy to manhood. Their goal was to get him to be an heir, was to get him so that he could actually inherit and be in a position to inherit what his father had worked so hard for. And Paul says that's what the law is for. The law was our guardian. The whole point of the law was to get you to Christ. Notice what he says. So then the law was our guardian until, that is, until the time that Christ would come in order that we might be justified by faith. Maturity is the goal of the law and that maturity looks like the coming of Christ. So the law was there to point you to Christ. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The role of the law is ended. It got the nation of Israel to where it needed to be. The purpose of the law was never to get people to accomplish their own salvation. It wasn't to strum up in them a desire to do good enough works to be justified by God. The purpose of the law was to get to Christ. And so we talked about what are some roles of the law? The law does indeed protect people. It protected the nation of Israel. It provided sacrifices for them so that God could be their God while covering their sins. I talked to Bree the other day about this wonderful picture that I had, which is being lived out for us outside. Michigan is beautiful when it snows. And then after a couple of days, all you see is the dirt and the grime that underlies the snow. But then what happens? We have a fresh layer of snow come upon us and it covers everything. It makes it beautiful again. But we know that underneath there's still dirt and ugliness. We know we're just happy that we don't have to look at it for a couple of moments until we drive into a snowbank and die. But that's a separate issue. (laughs) Mainly, we're just happy that we don't have to look at all the dirt, right? This is what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They covered. The blood covered the people and it protected them from God's wrath. God overlooked their sinful and dirty interiors because they were laid over with that blood until Christ came to actually remove it. So the law protects people. The law provides moral instruction. The law does all this, but the purpose of the law was to, in the end, get you to Christ. 
so that the nation of Israel might exist until the coming of Christ, so that when Christ comes, we might have some sort of way to understand what it is that he's doing. We might have a way of understanding his sacrifice on the cross because of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We might have some way of understanding the the thing that he died for in sin because we have the law that tells us what sin is. So the law comes to do all that, but the law is no more. Much of what we're talking about here is what theologians call salvation history. It is how God works out history throughout the course, or works out salvation, excuse me, throughout the course of history. But we shouldn't just think that what Paul is doing here, I think, is only a matter of salvation history. It's not just a matter of what God did through Israel to bring us to Christ, but it is a matter of what we also have to go through in order to come to know Christ. The law is almost necessary to really, truly evangelize people. Before there can be good news, there must, must, in this case, be bad news. If you're going to offer salvation to somebody, you have to know what you're being saved from. They have to be instructed as to what Christ has actually done. How can you explain the cross of Christ without explaining something of sin? Even if you want to take him as an example, even if that's all you want to do, which is not what Paul ever does, but even if you only want to take him as an example, an example of what, precisely? And why do I need that example? We must be people who present the law as the bad news before we get to the good news of Christ. People must know their great sin before God. They must know that they are by nature children of wrath. They must know of the great anger and the wrath that God has reserved for those who transgress against his law. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. David writes this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He said, I'm blessed because God doesn't count my sin against me. But what does he say happened before that. He said, I had to confess my sin. I had to know my sin and I had to confess my sin before I knew anything of the blessing. The good news of the blessing that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ is only understood when you know the wrath and the anger of God and you know that you stand under that wrath. Paul is urging people then Do not trust in your own skill. Do not trust in your own deeds. For the law tells you that you will always fail. You will never measure up to what God wants or declares needs to be true. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We're nothing but dead leaves. And our sin blows us away. He says all of our good works, all of them, because they are so polluted by sin, they're like a diseased and stained garment. 
You cannot trust yourself to those things. And do not think that God accepts you because of the work of your hands. Do not seek affirmation in your skill. Seek your affirmation in Christ alone. Secondly, do not seek affirmation in yourself. Do not seek affirmation in yourself. Do not make your own standard for what you're going to be acceptable to God by. Don't say, I'm acceptable to God because of X, Y, or Z, and, and sort of fill in the blanks however you might want. We oftentimes have people say very trite, very well-known phrases to affirm their place in position of God, underneath God, as people of God. In Psalm 5.5, 5, we read, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And people say, I'm okay because God loves everybody. They pacify themselves on the fact that God loves everybody. The scripture says God doesn't love everybody. Now there's a, a way in which we can say, yes, yes, God loves everybody. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The snow falls on the just and the unjust. It doesn't matter who you are. You go outside, you will get snow on you. God is good to provide to people, even those who are evil. And that way, his love lays upon everybody. But David knew well that his saving love did not land on everybody. That there were people who would be cut off. So much so that he would say that God hates them and abhors them. People will turn around and say things like, God loves everybody and God has a plan for everybody. Psalm 11.5, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God oftentimes promises not only that he hates those, but the Psalms often proclaim that there will be destruction upon those who act wickedly and do wicked things. Do not, do not think that you can make up a new standard for what it is that will accept you before God. People say things like, God cares that I'm authentic. We want to be authentic people. We don't want to pretend that we're something we're not. That's great. You don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm all for people not being hypocritical. All for it. But along with not being hypocritical, there also needs to be holiness. There also needs to be purity. You need to be authentic, but you also have to strive after these things. Romans 12.4 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness that you must have to see the Lord. Listen to Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he goes through and he lists those. And then he says, Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, what's he saying there? He's saying that those people are really, truly authentic. They're not only doing it, but they're giving a thumbs up to everyone else who does it. That is the most authentic thing you can do. And Paul is saying, but they are condemned because they do them. Again, we can say 
new standards, like God accepts me the way I am. Yes, just as I am, we sing that, that's true. But God also calls for a change. We just read last week, John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. There must be something that changes in you. If you are going to be saved, there must be a coming on of the Spirit who leads you to walk not in the way of the flesh, but in his own way. To to force this upon the Galatians here, Paul turns to what I think we should see as an unlikely source. Listen to what he says in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We think, okay, that's what we want, right? We want to be in Christ Jesus. He is the only heir of Abraham. We talked about that before. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the only heir of Abraham. He is indeed the son of God and the son of Abraham. If we want to know God, to be in him, to be in Christ is to be there. And, and that is everything we want. So that, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we want to be assured of. We want to know that we are in Christ Jesus. That's great, Paul. How can we know that? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul turns to, of all things, baptism. Now scholars read this and and it seems out of place. They don't say that, but it kind of seems out of place. And they say, this is, he's using the word baptism here, yes, yes, yes. But he's referring to spirit baptism. What he's referring to is this idea that the spirit The work of the Spirit upon you unites you to Christ. So when the Spirit comes upon you, when you confess your faith, when you confess Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes upon you and unites you to Jesus. And that's what we would call Spirit baptism, the coming of the Spirit upon you, uniting you to Christ. The problem that I have with that, as true as that is, and that does unite us to Christ, is I don't know why Paul doesn't just mention the Spirit here. It's not like he is reticent to mention the Spirit in the book of Galatians. The Spirit is all over the book of Galatians. It bookends every single thing that he talks about. He began his argument in chapter 3 by talking about the Spirit. In 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The whole point of that first section was you've received the Spirit. Therefore, you don't need anything else. You will turn around in chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. You brothers are like Isaac and are children of the promise. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. You are like Isaac because you're born according to the Spirit. You are born according to the promise. The Spirit language is all over the place. By the time you get to chapter 5, Spirit language is now dominating everything. You don't walk by the flesh, but you walk by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, da-da-da-da-da. Spirit language is all over. Why not mention spirit here if he meant spirit baptism? I don't think that spirit baptism is totally out. The idea behind what spirit baptism means here is present. But I think that he actually does mean, like, baptism. He, he means the dunking of somebody into water and the pulling them out. See, what we tend to do is we tend to think spirit baptism is the actual thing And then baptism is just a symbol. I hate those words. It's just a symbol. 
it doesn't really mean anything. It's symbolizing something else. We can get past it, really. It's just a dunking, and then you, you kind of move on with your life, and that's not really the thing. But for Paul, it kind, of, it kind of really is the thing. What we don't mean is that when you're baptized, the Spirit comes upon you. We don't mean, like Roman Catholics and others uh, would indicate, that there is sort of a remission of sins when you're, you're baptized, and that is the, the act that actually cleanses you. We, we don't think that, but... We also ought not think that it's just a symbol. It's not just a symbol, it's an affirmation. When you are plunged into the water, you are indeed plunged into that which cannot foster your life. You will die if you stay underwater. You might hold your breath, and maybe I'll hold you down there just a little bit longer to make sure that you know that you can die down there and worry about it, but eventually you're going to be brought back up. So the issue is you're placed into something that you are dead in and you're raised back up, but there's more imagery than that. You are placed in baptistic language into Christ. The water doesn't just represent death, it represents death in Christ. You are placed in Christ so that when you come back out of the water, one of the brilliant things about being immersed is you're still dripping with water. You are wet from head to toe. You are in Christ. Christ is with you and among you and on you. There is symbolism there, but it's what's going on around the symbolism that also matters you are being affirmed by the church. Notice how passive this is. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you were baptized. The church looked at you and affirmed you. It didn't rely upon your own sort of coming up with an affirmation for what it means to be saved. You didn't have to make up little mottos. The church has been given these things. It makes a statement of faith. It takes a statement of faith from you. It takes a a life that is truly changed. It takes a mark of repentance upon you. And then the church, when you have rightly confessed these things, then gives you the affirmation of saying, your confession is good and true and let you be plunged into the body of Jesus Christ. You don't need to be affirmed by things that you have created yourself. You don't need to be affirmed by models that you've come up with yourself. The church has a ready-made affirmation for you, and it is baptism. Why would you trust your own heart for these things? We know the saying, the heart is deceitfully wicked, and it's deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, who can understand it? Do you trust yourself to your heart, or do you trust yourself to Scripture? The church, by standing on Scripture as its final authority and aided by tradition, is more accurately able to help you understand your assurance. You want to know whether you are rightly confessing the faith? How do you know that you don't have some sort of abhorrent view of the Trinity that will not save you? You belong to the church. How do you know that your statement of faith is good and true and that you're not confused in what you are proclaiming? You belong to the church. How do you know that you are rightly walking in the gospel? How are you supposed to know what you should and shouldn't do in order to honor God? Let's say you truly want to honor God. How can you be aided in that? You're aided by the church through the scriptures and through tradition. The church aids you in that. Assurance that you're not on your own. You walk with believers. They help bear your burdens and forgive your sins. They stand and they assure you of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The church is not scripture, and the church is not tradition. Tradition isn't scripture either. We think that scripture stands foremost, but we do not lose sight of the fact that God has given us help in tradition and with one another, that we can help assure one another. 
because of the traditions that have been handed down to us that we find in Scripture. Do not seek affirmation in your own self, in yourself. Don't come up with your own affirmations. Trust what God has given to you. Baptism is given to you to affirm you if you maintain your faith, if you maintain your statement of faith and continue to repent of your sins. Baptism is the thing you should look back to where the church has said, you have confessed well. Third, do not seek affirmation in your status. Do not seek affirmation in your status. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Of course, each one of these was sort of a privileged position. Both the Jews and the Greeks thought that they were better than the others. The Greeks thought that they were refined and philosophical and that they were the rulers of the world. The, the Jews thought that while they were not the rulers of the world, they thought as God's special people, they had a, spa- a place of privilege that others didn't get. Even outside of Christ, they thought that. Of course, those who were free have a standing that those who are slaves do not. And even more, of course, males had a privileged position over females. And that has been the way it was for many, many, many years. And Paul is saying when it comes to salvation, these things are just not true. Men don't have a foothold on something that women can't get to. There isn't an advantage to being a Jew or a Greek. There isn't an advantage to having this identity or that identity. Those identities don't matter. The identity that matters is that of Jesus Christ. Your status in the world, whatever you'd like to sort of cling on to, those claims mean nothing to God. He doesn't care about them. Your intelligence means nothing to God. Your gender means nothing to God when it comes to salvation. Your upbringing, your nobility, your social standing, your schooling, your success, whatever race you are, your nationality, doesn't matter to God. How you vote doesn't affirm you to God. Your reputation in the community, you hold no reputation with God. Whether you are wealthy, whether you have a nice personality, whether you are charismatic, none of it matters to God. Absolutely none of it. Do not bank on the fact that you have certain things, that you, you've garnered for yourself certain blessings from the world to think that that means that you can stand before Almighty God. Don't think that because you're smart that that gives you a step up or a leg up on everyone else. Don't think that because you have some sort of gift that makes you special among men that that makes you special with God. He doesn't care at all. Paul is being as as blatant as he can. There is no one who has a step up on anyone else. All will come to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. No identity, none that you can make up matters save that you are in Christ and that Christ knows you. This is what Daniel 4, 34 and 35 say. This is a statement, one of the few by a non-Jew in the Old Testament, where he speaks highly of God. Nebuchadnezzar, after going mad, has his reason returned to him, and he says this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He was the ruler of the greatest empire in the world. And when he came to his senses, he said, all of mankind is nothing but dust to you. They are count as nothing to you. You think that your status gives you any sort of a standing with God. It gives you nothing. Paul says, you need to know Christ. None of that matters. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, barbarian, Greek, it doesn't matter. English, Indian, it doesn't matter. You all can come to know God and be assured in God only through Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that these distinctions are somehow unraveled totally. It doesn't mean that men are no longer men and women are no longer women. As a matter of fact, God sort of revels in the fact that he has made people different and distinct. Those are good things. But those distinctions, while they remain in place, mean nothing when it comes to salvation in Christ. It is not your identity that matters, but your identity in Christ that matters. He is the heir. He is the inheritor of all of the blessings of God. He is the fount of blessing for you. He is the sacrifice that cleanses you. He is the truth and the way. He is the life and the resurrection. He is the true and pure Son of God, and he is the sovereign ruler of all. You are nothing. Christ is all in all. Do not think that God wants you to waver in your assurance God works very hard to provide you with everything you need to be assured of your standing in Christ. He gave us the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper to increase our faith that we might stand before him. He gave us the promised spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, as Paul says even one book over in the book of Ephesians. But you must find your assurance in the right place. God wants to give you assurance, but you have to find it in the right place. Don't look to false imitations of assurance, which can always lead you astray and place you in grave, grave danger. God has given you all the affirmation you need. After all, as we will sing in just a moment, we serve a great God who will keep your hearts and guard your souls from every evil that you face. He wants you to be assured, so you should trust in him. Place your faith in him. Find your assurance, not in skill or in yourself or in your status, but in the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. Let us pray. Father God, let us be assured this morning, not in who we are, but in who you are. Not in what we can do, but what you have done. Let us be assured that we are yours because Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and died and been raised again for our salvation because you have provided us the Spirit, because you have provided for us tradition that holds on to what Scripture has said, where we can know that we hold on to the faith that has once and for all been delivered to your saints. Let us trust that those things are true and good. Let us never trust in ourselves, who we are or what we have done. That is foolish. We pray that you will give us wisdom, Father, for our fear is in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.